License and registration, please. I'm gonna write you a ticket. A ticket? It was a bad decision on your part to honk at a police officer. Oh, what? Why? Are you above the beep? Absolutely. I'm a police officer. I protect your rights. My rights to beep? That's one of my rights. Yeah, but you don't... Beeping! That's a right! That's America. We're allowed to beep. Yeah, well, I'm allowed to write this ticket. Good. Write it. You getting smart with me, boy? I'm not getting smart. I am smart, by the way. I'm smart. Yeah. And, of course, I'll be protesting this ticket. I hope you enjoy your day in court. Here you go. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you. You made my day. That was Larry David and Damon Wayans Jr. in a scene from Curb Your Enthusiasm, which was edited by today's guest, Roger Nygaard. Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of the Occasional Film Podcast, the occasional companion podcast to the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. I'm the blog's editor, John Gaspar. Today we're talking with filmmaker Roger Nygaard, In addition to being a director, an editor, and a screenwriter, Roger is also the author of a terrific book, Cut to the Monkey, a Hollywood editor's behind-the-scenes secrets to making hit comedies. In it, he explores the nature of editing comedy, with advice from some of the comedy experts he's worked with over the years. Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and David Mandel on Veep, plus Sasha Baron Cohen, Alex Berg, and many, many more. The book gives us a great jumping off point. I could talk to you about film, and I have in the past, you know, on, on under any sort of structure. Right, no uh, reason to stop that now. Yeah, but the book does raise some interesting points that I want to talk about, because not only did I learn stuff about you reading uh, Cut to the Monkey, but I also learned some stuff of myself that I had not considered seeing what I've done in movie making through your eyes. Um, and so we'll start right at the beginning. You have uh, very supportive parents when it came to what you were doing creatively as a youngster. Is that safe to say? Yeah, well, particularly my mother, you know, I mean, it's really a mother's job. And I guess my mom did her job in that category, which was when I came home and from kindergarten with my, you know, they give you crayons and you have to draw a picture, right? Everyone does that. And so I would hand it to my mother all proud and she would say, that is amazing. You are so creative. You're so talented. So she would fill my head with this delusion that I carry to this day that I'm talented. And so it, it, it gives me a framework to keep trying despite the constant failures over and over again. And eventually, you know, one of them sticks and, then, oh, I guess, you know, I succeeded here because I didn't give up. And it, it doesn't it also give you kind of a, a trampoline effect in your head that you can just bounce back pretty quickly from rejection just because you have this basis of, no, you're cool, you're fine. Yeah, well, the thought that I have when when something goes wrong, I get a bad review or someone doesn't like my script or someone critiques a a documentary. My first thought is not, oh, I'm not good enough. My first thought is, oh, what idiots? They don't get it. (laughs) So it's it's their fault, not mine, that they don't like my work. Uh, I haven't gotten to that degree yet, but <laughs> it's it quite a useful delusion. <laughs> it, I know it's a delusion, but I'm stuck with it because my mother instilled in my framework of my mind as it was soft and solidifying. We, she got me when I was young. Yeah. And and I was in, in the same situation. Parents who didn't really understand what I was doing, but recognized the passion I had for it. And um, were just very encouraging. I'm always reminded of Steve Martin's stories and the one where uh, he has brought his parents to see his first movie, The Jerk. 
And uh, as they come out, his father turns to him and says, well, it's not Charlie Chaplin. And you go, well, that's a whole different parenting style than I was brought up with. That's the, that's the opposite of what you had. And that's yeah. what he's fighting against. And I, I, in reading the book and in reading you know, what you went on to do, I kept coming back to, he was so lucky to have that basis of ego, I guess, that allows you to bounce back into business that very often is, is pushing you down. Well, you know, we're all Delta hand, right? A certain yeah. amount of talent and it's genetic and it's sort of, here's what you're given. Now play your hand the best you can. Steve Martin had an amazing hand. He had a, a straight flush, right? And so he was able to overcome whatever difficulties his parents and others put in front of him because of his immense talent. I, on the other hand, am a completely mediocre talent, <laughs> but pressed forward by this pressure of support that I felt. And so I... One thing I learned, and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, when I made a documentary called The Nature of Existence, when I was really questioning existentialism and my own reason for being and what is the point of everything, I learned from that journey that the point of everything is to be creative daily. And that's what brings me happiness. And so it's not like I have to force myself to be creative. It's it's sort of built into my need to be, we all have a need to be happy and I'm the same as everyone else. And I enjoy the result of my labor, my creative labor daily. A little bit of that, you know, Minnesota work ethic, Scandinavian work ethic is that if I don't put forth some effort during the day, I feel like a complete loser at the end of the day. And so I have to have some kind of something to show for myself for the day, some work I put in, some some result, whether it's cleaning the garage or writing a, a book, either one or both are immensely satisfying to have completed or feel like I completed something today and look back on myself and go, wow, I did that. I feel really good about myself. And then my, you know, my mother's programming is all part of that. See, you did it. You can do it. You're good. And it's a self-perpetuating process. So every day I'm creating, working on the next book, working on the next script, editing TV show, whatever it is, it's all creative. And I remember reading a study once, I think way back in college, how there was this nursing home where they had a hundred residents and they gave everybody a plant and 50% of the residents, they said, here's a plant. We'll take care of it. You have no responsibility. The other 50%, they said, here's a plant. You need to water this and take care of it. It's your responsibility. And the ones with the responsibility for the plant lived longer because they suddenly had a reason for being in their life. And it's about creation. They're creating life out of this plant and keeping it alive. And it's what's innate in us is to create. And most, most of us, I guess we get married, we have children, and that child, it becomes your, that's your project for 20 years or 18 years or however long it takes to kick them out of the basement. You brought forth a small version of yourself. You brought your created life and you're trying to make a better version of yourself by putting what you can into that, uh, that new entity. And that creativity takes over your life for the, this two decades. Then a lot of people find themselves back where they started. What do I do now? And then they're taking pottery classes or painting or dancing classes and back to finding ways to express their creativity again. And when, when human beings are not expressing creativity, they become depressed. And if you give someone a paper who's depressed and say, take 10 minutes and draw a picture of uh, a plant or a giraffe, or just draw a picture while they're drawing, the depression is not a part of their mental framework because they're expressing creativity. They have a purpose, even if it's for that five minutes. And so you and I, as filmmakers, you know, we put that forth that energy into a, a film or a product, uh, ultimately that has a, a larger result of some kind. We finish it. We show it to our community, our social network. We get feedback. 
And then that self-perpetuating loop continues. Some of that feedback is negative, some of it's positive, but all of but it's that's it's good to get any feedback because we're social creatures. We need that feedback. We need to engage and be creative. And that's a lesson that I learned in, from the beginning of from age seven until now. You know, and it, it shows up in the book. And I should say, you know, I love the book, The Cut to the Monkey. I knew I would because I knew your voice. And in, in the times we talked in the past, I've always come away with stuff that I remember that I keep using. It's a terrific book uh, about how to be a good editor. It's also a really good book about how to get a job as an editor, how to keep a job as an editor. Um, I noticed you slipped in there in the middle of the book, a book about screenwriting, which was a nice little diversion where it's like all of a sudden, oh, this is a screenwriting book. And then it's back to being an editing book. But that's sort of selfish on your part, because as an editor, the better the screenplay that you're dealing with, the easier it's going to be for you to edit. And you also had some great ideas about story and structure and, and how a scene works. Editors are writers, right? They're the same. They're, they're, it's yeah. another type of writing. And if, if you're not, if uh, to be a good editor, you also have to understand writing. That's true. That's true. And, um, you know, we first crossed paths I, you must have still been in Minneapolis at that point. Uh, you had just shot Warped, uh, which I get the sense you finished in LA, but you started here. If I'm getting that was it after I moved to Los. Yeah, I moved to Los Angeles after college. I graduated from the University of Minnesota in the fall of 1984. In 85, packed up my Celica, drove it over the mountains, barely made it, and got a job. Uh, I was originally going to go to graduate school and I applied and got turned down everywhere except USC. I got into USC, the number one school. Everyone else said no. And by the time my semester came around to start, I had already found a job. And uh, once I did the math, I thought, okay, I could start spending $50,000 a year on grad school, or I can keep working here and take my grad school money and go make a short film, which I will now own because you don't own it. It's USC owns your film and there's no guarantee you get to direct at USC. You have to earn the right and very few do. So it seemed to me a better equation. And that's what Warped was. That was my grad school money being poured into making a short film. And I went back to Minnesota where I had more contacts and was able to pull it off on a, a lower budget. But you and I had actually inter- had crossed paths even earlier, way back at the University of Minnesota at a place called UCV, Uni- University Community oh, Video. Yeah. Yeah. You were making a film uh, at the time. What was your first uh, feature length film called? <clears throat> we did two on video. One Deception, was right? Deception was the second one. Oh, uh, I remember Deception. That was yeah, what Deception. I remember seeing. And, yeah. and, I, and, and I'm being influenced. I go, wow, these guys just made a movie, you know, using video, using the same equipment I had access to. And yeah. so I aspired to achieve what you were doing at that time. And that would be like 1982? Somewhere around 82, yeah. And uh, we, we were not... Not embraced by the uh, UC University community video people because to them we were using video as cheap film, which they thought was a bad thing and we thought was a good thing. Yeah, um, well, they were, I mean, they, they, their idea of art was was very specific. That yes. art had to make you feel bad, I think. <laughs> it didn't have to make, you know, I, I have an opinion that I like to make people laugh and feel good. And so I, I get turned down a lot by film festivals for my films because they're too entertaining. I remember seeing Warped and thinking this guy is a really good director and a really good editor. And I don't know, you know, when we look back on our earlier films, I don't know what you think about Warp, but I remember thinking this guy is going to get a job in LA directing and editing because I've never seen such sharp editing. Uh, And then in reading the book, I learned that our paths were very similar. We were each given uh, regular cameras at a very young age. But what I realized in looking at your path was, you know, okay, so we both start with regular eight and then I moved on to super eight. And in terms of editing at that point, I'm a pretty good editor. I'm shooting a lot of coverage 
and I'm cutting it together really nicely. Uh, it flows and it has the rhythms you want. And then I hit a speed bump uh, when I went to film in the city school uh, in my junior and senior years of high school. I spent every afternoon at this film school and Kodak had just come out with their single system sound camera and we could now shoot dialogue. And that as an editor absolutely put the brakes on me because I could no longer edit because I had to deal with the sound. So the first couple of things I did were like Woody Allen-esque long takes and you just join them together. And then I did a feature in Super 8 Sound and was able to get in there and make the edits. And you can imagine, you know, your picture's here and your sound is 24 frames away and you have to cut the sound because that's what's going to throw people off. The visual, they won't mind so much, but if the sound isn't right. And it, I did a couple of features in Super 8 Sound and it steered me toward a dialogue driven kind of writing. Then like you, we moved into video and suddenly we had a little bit more freedom. But if you remember in those days, it was a cumbersome system. You're using three quarter inch tapes. Um, if you didn't right, have the a 30 pound porta pack. But we did get better at editing, but you still had that problem of it was very linear. You had this shot and then you put on that shot and then that shot. And if you wanted to go back, you literally had to go back and redo everything. And it wasn't at a point where there was a computer that was going to remember it. These are the same problems Charlie Chaplin faced going from silent to sound. And so you followed the same path as Chaplin. What did you learn in that phase of your career when it came to, I think we're kind of fighting the editing system at that time to do what we want. Do you, do you have memories of that? Well, when I discovered video, yes, it was a whole new world because at the same time, that was around, it was just before and as MTV was being born. And this idea that you could cut so much was new and it changed how I thought about filmmaking. And I was like you, I was breaking things down into shots and building more of a visual essay. I wasn't, I was much less pursuing the dialogue long takes, the, the road you took, and more pursuing how to cut a bunch of images together set to music, which was in the direction of MTV. And that led me to shooting these um, early music videos and filming bands like, like I filmed Dare Force in concert. And uh, I ended up working with Eddie Estrin of Rocking Horse, who did some music for one of my early shorts and was combining music and images. And eventually I realized I needed to start telling stories, though. When you're when you're editing video, you're not at that point, you're not really fighting the system. The system was working fine for you. I was learning what the system could do. I hadn't gone to film school yet and I hadn't started writing scripts. All my early films were essentially the same story, which is the story that they if you watch silent films, it's the same story they tell. It's a chase. Somebody has something and the other people are chasing him for it. I mean, Keystone Cops is just a nonstop chase, right? Buster Keaton, lots of foot chases and car chases. And it's the easiest story to tell without much of a plot. And Warped even has a car chase in it. Once I finally stepped up to doing narrative, mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't, <laughs> it was so ingrained in me. There's got to be a car chase. So I even worked a car chase with an old lady chasing another girl, you know, on foot trying to run her down. I guess part of that was, I was always in my mind imagining, oh, someday I'm going to go to Hollywood and make James Bond movies or something because I loved James Bond, particularly the Roger Moore era because they were so funny. I loved the comedy. That's what I was really enamored with. And, you know, a lot of people want to pick on the Roger Moore era, but I love that era. It is the silliest era for James Bond. Yeah. Okay, so then what was your first 16 millimeter piece? Was that Warped? 
Warped was shot on 16 millimeter. Yes. And it's it's really the only time until I shot a documentary called Six Days in Roswell, which we shot on Super 16. But otherwise, after Warped, then I moved to 35 millimeter. I followed what is now more, much more common, even when people still use film. I made a digital inner uh, uh, DNI, digital inner negative, whatever you call mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah. Digital intermediate. I made a digital intermediate. I filmed on 16 millimeter, but I went to a post house and transferred it all to one inch masters. And then from that made three quarter inch dailies tapes. And I edited and then online on video. So I never went back to film. You're ahead of your time there. It saved money and gave me more more flexibility. There's much more I could do when I wasn't limited to just cutting together the film. There's so much more. You, you there are many more ways to manipulate in the world of video. And I became, in my opinion, I the reason I think I became a good editor or a great editor, whatever level I am, is because of a turn of bad luck. Where after I made my first feature film, High Strung, it was very difficult to get my second film made, and so I had a three year stretch where I didn't have much income coming in and I was $30,000 in debt. And I took a job writing, producing and editing promos for TNT Latin America. During those two years, by being forced to edit promos, when you've got to cut something down to a 15 second spot, it forces you to understand and realize every frame is crucial and anything extraneous has to go. So I spent those two years cutting those promos. It's like shooting layups practicing my craft and all those tricks I learned during that period, I took forward into making my Trekkies, the way I cut Trekkies and the way I work on Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's because I had that time where I was forced to kind of go into the trenches and cut these promos. What a great boot camp to go through. We probably didn't realize at the time that that was what was going to be sort of your superpower. Yeah. A big problem for a lot of filmmakers is that when they get too much success too early, they haven't gone through a boot camp. And so they end up making all of the typical film school mistakes on their big feature. And then it shows. You got to get that out of your system so you can create a product that doesn't have all those typical flaws that every filmmaker makes when they start out. But what do you think is the biggest misconception the general public and starting filmmakers have about what it means to really be a good editor? Well, the thesis of my book in Cut to the Monkey, I have a chapter about it specifically. You don't want to be an editor who cuts films. You should be a filmmaker who edits. To be a great editor, you need to be great as a filmmaker. So what I recommend to film students is to learn about the world, learn about every aspect of filmmaking, then choose your specialty, whatever it is, whether it's wardrobe, makeup, editing, cinematography, and particularly you should understand story structure. That's the most important thing anyone going into filmmaking should understand is how stories are put together in such a way that audiences like to receive them. You know, three-act structure. There's a reason for three-act structure. And it's not something that's forced on people by Hollywood. It's something that the Greeks realized way back when they were putting on their shows, their plays, that humans like things told to them in a certain way. And this is the way we like it. And if you don't present a story that follows this structure, you're going to lose the audience. And no matter what your job is, whether it's editor or cinematographer, the better you understand how this works, the better you can do your job. That's the least, I think, understood and most important aspect for editors that I try to impress upon people. Here's a rule of editing. You want to enter and and screenwriting, same rule. You want to enter every scene as late as possible and get out as soon as you can, as soon as the climax 
of the scene occurs, you don't want to dribble on past the punchline. And so oftentimes, like especially on Curb Your Enthusiasm, where I'm dealing with improv scenes, where I'm trying to find the best in and out points, they may have shot a seven minute scene or a six minute scene or even a three minute scene that's twice as long as it should be. And I'm realizing that the ending came in the middle. They've, they reached the best point and the rest, as funny as it is, is completely unnecessary. And then it, it has to go away. Or we don't need to all this preamble at the beginning. Let's get right to the conflict, right to the problem, right to the argument, right to the, the dead body, the infection, the uh, insurrection, the ins- in- whatever the inciting incident of the, whether it's the movie or each scene, each scene must have a moment where something is conflictual. If you think about it, every one of your and my favorite movies, everyone, anyone listening to this, all your favorite movies are a fight between one thing and another, one person and another, one person in society, a person in the environment. We love watching people fight. I mean, some movies even have the word versus right in the title. You know, God's, Godzilla versus Megalon. We know who's going to fight who. Yeah. <laughs> Superman versus whoever. We know every Marvel movie is a fight between our hero and the bad guy, and the bad guy is stronger. So our hero is doomed, and it's quite a struggle to get to the end where the hero emerges victorious. Once the the bad guy is vanquished, the movie's over, obviously, right? You you can't go on past that, or the audience is, you've lost them. They know when a movie's over, and an editor has to know when a movie's over, and when a scene is over. And you know that because you have studied the language of cinema and the the art of story and, and literature. Yeah. One thing I wished I had done more, taken more classes in college was in literature and studied more classic literature. That was my weakest link link in my curriculum. When I went to the University of Minnesota, I had a, my I majored in communications because it was the closest thing they had to filmmaking, but I had no minor because I wanted to take a class in every single discipline from biology to physics to meteorology to psychology, every single I wanted to learn about the world and I took one literature class and I wish I had taken six or many more. Maybe I should have minored in literature because that would have been the most useful tool moving forward. Um, One of the things that I find interesting in editing is the misconception that people have when it comes to continuity being the editor's fault, where they'll go, oh, she was face holding a cup with one hand and now she's holding with the other or whatever it is. And I believe that 99% of the time, that's the editor saving something and making it work when it didn't work. Well, you know, the the editor has to, you have to watch for continuity. You have to try to match things so it doesn't stick out and pull the audience out of the story. Mm-hmm. That's your one of your missions. But our rule on Curb Your Enthusiasm and my rule is comedy over continuity. If it's funny, we don't care which hand the pen was in. Yeah. And that said, these days we'll do on a typical Curb Your Enthusiasm episode, a hundred digital effects shots. Now, you don't think of those TV, TV shows as digital effects heavy, but they are. And many of those are to move that, take that pen out of the hand that it wasn't supposed to be in or to change uh, a t-shirt or to put a jacket on somebody that he was supposed to be wearing and they forgot. We're changing everything now so that we can get the maximum comedy. At, it doesn't matter the cost in, in continuity if it's funny. There are times also where on when I was editing Veep, the showrunner, Dave Mandel, would want to cut six lines. 
the problem was the uh, they were walking from room to room as they're delivering those lines. And so Selena Meyer might, she says a line in one room and then Dan responds to it in a completely different room. But you can't tell, you know, maybe it's a slightly different color, but you don't, people don't really pay attention to those things if you keep it moving and keep the energy moving forward and keep the jokes coming. They just feel like that it's all part of one construction. You've got them caught up in the story and they're not they're not looking for that sort of thing. In in reading the book and seeing your phrase word baggage, uh, I'll let you define that first, then I'll tell you my experience with it. You might notice if you watch people talking, and we're probably included, that they say things like, um, like, you know, and they pause. They throw all of this, what I call word baggage, into their performances. Actors do it a lot, especially when they're trying to remember their lines. And my job as an editor is to scrape away those barnacles, to get rid of it all. One of them, that they, a big one, is they'll say, look, or listen before they start speaking. It's an announcement that says, I'm about to speak. It's like clearing your throat. <clears throat> Look at me, everyone, I'm about to speak. I get rid of the announcements. I get rid of the word baggage. I get rid of the pauses so that it flows as elegantly as possible with as little in the way between a setup and a punchline or a beginning and an ending. Whatever the two poles are that I have to get between, I wanna get through there as quickly and efficiently and elegantly as possible by getting rid of all that word baggage without speeding things up just to speed them up. What I've noticed is that the the best pacing for a scene is always faster than what the actor thought it should be, or the director thought it should be, or the writer thought it should be. The audience, especially now, I think people even compared to 10 years ago, and especially 50 years ago, humans are primed to receive their information rapidly. And so you have to keep the pace at a certain level or you lose them. They'll switch to watch something else. Now, that doesn't mean you cut out all the pauses. That just means that as an editor, when there's a pause, it, everyone pauses because you choose for them to pause because it's funny to pause and yeah. the awkward pause or the reason and it's part of the information. You know, in the book, you've got the periodic table of nonsense, and we could do several episodes just on going through that. But the number nine in that one is do it faster. And it is a huge bugaboo of mine uh, as a director, something I'm trying to get better at, because invariably when you shoot it and you're watching them do it, it seems just that's perfect. That's perfect. And then you get into the editing room and it needs to be 20% faster. I remember reading an interview with Tom Stoppard, who has directing his first movie, the movie version of his play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. He's in the editing and the interviewer says to him, what would you change? And he, would, he said, if I could change anything in this movie, it would be to make them talk faster. And this is a guy who wrote their words, who had seen it done a million times. It seemed perfect to him when he shot it. And yet when you get in to the editing suite, it's like, oh my, oh, come on. Why is this not? And I don't know how to trick my brain as a director to know that. Is there, is there a secret to that? You become an editor. And <laughs> so that you think about editing while you're directing. All the great directors should have an understanding of all of the other jobs on the set, including editor. That's why you, you what, one reason you should, when you go to film school, you should try everything and learn everything. I mean, I learned all the roles because I had to when I was making my first short films because I couldn't afford to hire people to do these things. So I ended up having to do everything for the most part. And I learned from that. I mean, I started putting myself in for the first time. I mean, I started acting as it were in my documentaries by making myself the host of a couple of them. And that was because I couldn't afford Morgan Freeman. But I learned so much coming out of making The Nature of Existence, the first time I did that, I had so much more respect for actors 
than I did before. It was like, just say your line. Why is it so hard? You know, it's hard to hit your marks and say your lines and remember them correctly. Wow, that's hard. <laughs> so, uh, you know, learn. you have to learn everything or you should try to learn what each of the roles in a production are if you want to be great at whatever specialty you choose. You know, I think you've been part of a, a wave of getting dialogue faster. Uh, I know you've directed on The Office, worked on Veep, you worked on Curb. Those are all, particularly the last two, uh, their hallmark is the speed at which the jokes and the dialogue happened. And if you go back in the history of film, I mean, one of my favorite, it, they, they were very good at this in the 30s, uh, in the 40s. And if you look at uh, His Girl Friday, there are a couple scenes in it where there's no edit they are just going at 150 miles an hour and you get all of it and it doesn't seem like they're racing, but they're going really, really fast. And it's something that actors of that age are able to do. I know there's a there's a scene in um, What's Up Doc, which is trying to emulate that feeling, in which I saw an interview with Peter Bogdanovich saying when they did this one scene with Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand, it was like two and a half minutes long in rehearsal. And he said, it's got to be a minute. And they said, well, what do you want to cut? He said, I'm not going to cut anything. Just do it again and do it in a minute. What's wrong? The future. What's the matter with it? Well, judging from the recent past... Listen, you know what Edmund Burke said. You can never plan the future by the past. I beg your pardon. I guess you're wondering what a nice girl like me is doing quoting an 18th century guy like Edmund Burke. I was a political science major at Colorado State. Oh, is that where you gathered your information Hey, look, you got a case just like mine. Uh Uh-huh. No. No? No. Advanced Geology, Wellesley. And what about the music? Bennington, Musical Appreciation, Complet, Northwestern University. Is that it? Archaeology, Tuskegee Institute, General Semantics, University of Chicago, Veterinary Medicine, Texas A&M, say when. What were you trying to become? A graduate. Why is that so important? It was important to my father. He was very upset when I was asked to leave the first college I ever went to. Asked to leave? Bounced. You want to know why? Uh, no. Uh, no. Anyway, he sent me someplace else after that, but that didn't work out either. None of them did. Some of it was very nice, though. You know, I read a lot of good books. I went to a lot of movies, mostly, but something always seemed to go wrong. Yes, I can believe that. Well, this last time was not my fault. What happened? Nothing. Nothing, really. It was just a, a, a little classroom. It, it sort of burned down. Burned down? Well, blew up, actually. Political activism? Chemistry major. I see. You're looking for the sweet spot where it becomes the funniest and it gets less funny when you go faster at some point and you go, okay, we've gone too far. And then you got to go back and loosen up the lug nuts a little bit. And some, some shows, like when I worked on Grey's Anatomy, I realized I was going way too fast and I had to go back and slow down my pacing. Ray Seahorn, who was uh, on uh, Better Call Saul, Mm -hmm. I just worked with her on a a web series called Cooper's Bar. And we were discussing this very idea of speeding things up. And she said that actors, the way she put it was actors feel like every line is the most that they have is the most important line. So they luxuriate in it. They draw it out. They put in these pauses, the dramatic pause, and you got to speed them up. Okay. When I'm directing, I remembered my number one and two most common pieces of advice to actors were after you praise them, you tell them that was fantastic. You're great. Now try it faster and try to enunciate more. <laughs> Just yeah. say it clearly and more fast. <laughs> How tough could that be? You know, one of the things you talk about in the book is something I would have a lot of trouble doing, although I pat myself on the back for having done it a few times in, in the last few features I've done on digital, which is, uh, I think you call it uh, cutting some B-plus jokes to make a, an A-plus joke bigger. And, you know, I'm from the Joe Bologna, my favorite year school, you never cut funny. And I imagine it's really hard, particularly if you're dealing with, you know, Curb, where you say you have all this great material and you're just throwing stuff away. Doesn't that hurt your heart at some point to go, that's a great joke, but it, it just doesn't get to live here? Yeah, it's hard to do to cut funny stuff 
but you have to keep the overall in mind. I mean, that's the director's job, really. You're in charge of overall. Each actor is in charge of their own lines. So that's why they think theirs is the most important. But the director knows, has to know what's most important for the gestalt of the project. It's tricky. I mean, we cut a lot of funny stuff in Curb Your Enthusiasm, obviously. And, you know, the shows are much longer shot to be much longer the idea of curating jokes, though, that was Alec Berg, his theory. He, I met, I met Alec when he was on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he went on to co-create Barry, and yeah. he worked on Silicon Valley. His thought is that the most memorable movies and TV shows have four or five or six gigantic laughs, belly laughs. And that's what you when you tell your friends about it. To get those gigantic belly laughs, sometimes you have to sacrifice a bunch of other B-plus jokes so that the A-plus jokes can shine and build. You've got to build a framework so the A-plus jokes can land. You know, Bridesmaids is a film that's going to be remembered for a long time because it has some gigantic belly laughs in it. Lots of comedies have come and gone that had 100 B-plus laughs that you watch it and then you move on, you kind of forget about it because it never rose to that level of that gigantic moment. Each episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm has, that's the goal is to have several of those gigantic laugh moments. And it, it takes planning and some judicious sacrifices of other jokes to get there. I've taken up a bunch of your time. I want to ask you a couple real quick questions and then we'll wrap up because we could literally do this all day long. Whatever you like. Editing is such a uh, invisible art in theory. Do you have a movie, the movie you think is really well edited that you love because it's so well edited? Many. I mean, I could tell you the ones that influenced me. There's a movie called The Hunger. That was Tony Scott's first movie. And the opening scenes, it's a a tour de force of editing with flash forwards and flash backwards. And uh, the song Bella Lugosi's Dead underlies everything. And they cut to a monkey uh, several times in that scene. So clearly that stuck with me. That for sure is a pivotal movie in my mind. Um, The Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi's film, one of his early films. The Citizen Kane of horror films. It really is astounding. He introduced so much to the film language in that movie that we all take for granted now through camera and dialogue and editing. It's astounding. I mean, yes, the classic films. Hitchcock is, there's no nobody uh, above Hitchcock who would direct as an editor. He was pre-editing in his mind as he shot. And you can see how everything's laid out. This is someone who had a a framework and a plan in mind. And it's very clear. There's a a very strong filmmaker's hand. Those are some examples. Is there a favorite edit you have in a movie when one shot is connected to another one? I love experimenting with jump cuts. I'm always trying to work in jump cuts in my work. It's hard to get them through, though, because jump cuts call attention to themselves. But I love it when they work. And many times they work as an ellipsis to get from somewhere in time to somewhere else in time more rapidly. They work best in a montage where someone has like a packing montage, you know, suitcase gets thrown on the bed, clothes get thrown into the suitcase, suitcase is slammed out the door. It's just saving a lot of time cutting shoe leather cutting wasted, non-informational visual material, you're cutting it out and leaving what remains. If you watch my film Suckers, you'll see a lot of jump cuts where I didn't plan it that way when I was filming, but when I got in the editing room, I started jump cutting things. Like a car pulls in and then I cut to uh, Louis Mandalore slamming the, the door of the car. I didn't need to see him turn off the car, get out of the car. We understand that. 
but the door slam gives me a, a, a button in the metronome of beats. So drive in, slam, house door, he's inside. Rule of three, three shots, yeah. all following a beat. And I look for those whenever possible to move things along quickly in a stylish way that doesn't uh, interrupt the flow of information and take the audience out of the story. Is there, a, you mentioned The Hunger, is there a, one movie that you think has been most influential when it comes to what we think of as modern editing in film? Well, editing is continually evolving. I mean, if you go back to The General and Buster Keaton, Buster Keaton was inventing a lot of editorial tricks that no one had done before and are shockingly still amazing and funny. Now, people are cutting too fast oftentimes, cutting just to cut, which is it's, it shows a loss of control of a scene or a movie when you're mm -hmm. cutting too much. I, I try never to cut. I try to cut as little as possible. If something's working, I'll let it play because I'm going to have to cut a lot to fix the dialogue. And the, the films that I find the most inspirational are usually ones I get lost in. I don't notice the editing. I don't, it doesn't jump out at me as, oh, that's a bad edit or that, that doesn't feel right. Or it's a smooth flow, a smooth, elegant flow from beginning to end because the editor steps behind the curtain. And that's when I know it's well edited. There's, there are movies where if I start getting antsy, I, okay, the editor failed because you know, it's there. If, if there's a, a slowdown or a problem and it gets past the editor's scissors, it's the editor's fault. Now, maybe they were countermanded by the executive producer or the director, um, but then it's still a, a, a mistake, a problem in editing that whoever left that scene in or left that moment in made that mistake. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm pushing the edge of the clock here. So I want to ask just one last thing. If you, if you want to give a person one piece of advice on how to become a better editor, what would it be? To become the best at what you do, whether it's editing or anything else, particularly, especially in film, you need to absorb the language of film. So watch movies with a notepad and take notes of everything that you notice. A line of dialogue, a great camera move, an interesting edit, and fill up those pages. I was doing this during college. I would watch movies on the weekend. I would watch three or four movies because I got a VHS recorder and I was able to tape movies off the air. And I didn't really know what I was looking for yet. I just knew I was writing things down that I liked. I remember watching Sergeant York and I was blown away by that movie. Gary, this Gary Cooper movie. I would have never watched it if I hadn't been seeking out four-star movies and catching up on movies, which is what people need. To, don't just rely on the movies on your favorite streamer. Go back through the history of movies. Watch all the great movies and take notes. And by taking notes, it forces you to learn about it, to absorb it. It doesn't just wash over you, you know, in one ear and out the other. You make a special mention in your in your notebook about it and that way it stays with you and you learn from it and you can go back then i've gone back and watched movies to see if they if they stood the test of time like where eagles dare or kelly's heroes that which really affected me when i was young and i've gone back and watched them and they are still they are so entertaining brian hutton who directed both those movies was on a roll at the time making these amazingly entertaining films they're amazingly shot, edited. The explosions, they, they, had, they didn't have digital effects. So they were really blowing those things up. And it's just astounding the logistics that they had to control to make those movies and to make it edit together seamlessly. And I took notes then and I watched it and I went back and, yo, know, these, these still stand up. So study the language of film. You need to absorb it and you need to take an active participation in studying it. 
Thanks to Roger Nygaard for taking the time to talk to me about editing and screenwriting and story structure and everything else we covered today. His enthusiasm for filmmaking is infectious, and as I mentioned in the interview, every time I talk to Roger, I learn something that makes me a better filmmaker. Now that you've listened to the podcast, you should run out and buy Roger's book, Cut to the Monkey, a Hollywood editor's behind-the-scenes secrets to making hit comedies, and catch up on his movies as well. Suckers, Trekkies, Six Days in Roswell, The Nature of Existence, and The Truth About Marriage. You can find links in the show notes. If you like this interview, you can find lots more just like it on the Fast Cheap Movie Thoughts blog. Plus, more interviews can be found in my books, Fast, Cheap, and Under Control, Lessons Learned from the Greatest Low-Budget Movies of All Time, and its companion book of interviews with screenwriters called Fast, Cheap, and Written That Way. Both books can be found on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Google, and Apple Books. And while you're there, check out my mystery series of novels about magician Eli Marks and the scrapes he gets into. The entire series, starting with The Ambitious Card, can be found on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Well, that's it for episode 104 of the Occasional Film Podcast, produced at Grass Lake Studios. Original music by Andy Morantz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you occasionally. <laughs>